Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Krug. And I'm Devika Gadish. We're the editors of Film Comment. Though we greatly enjoyed last year's hybrid New York Film Festival, it was an oasis amid the movie desert of the pandemic, we missed seeing the selections in the dark of film at Lincoln Center's theaters. So we were overjoyed when a redux version of the festival was announced for this summer, with much of the 2020 lineup playing on the big screen. To dig into the highlights of this encore edition and the films that must be seen big, or seen again. We sat down with FLC programmer Dan Sullivan and curator and critic Steve McFarlane. We discussed some underseen gems from the revival section, including, quote, the greatest sports documentary of all time, and went long on Paul Felton and Joe DiNardo's Slow Machine, as well as Steve McQueen's Small Axe Anthology. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. We are very excited today to have two very special guests. Um, Dan, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Dan Sullivan. I am a programmer at Film at Lincoln Center. And Steve, our other guest. New to the podcast. Ta-da! I feel like we have to do some kind of drum roll. Making his grand debut. Yeah, I mean, you can't see it, but I'm actually jumping out of a cake right now. Uh, my name is Steve McFarlane. <laughs> I'm a film programmer and sometimes film critic. Most of my activities take place at Spectacle Theater in Brooklyn, but I have also organized film screenings at uh, Anthology, Museum of Modern Art, uh, National Museum of African American History, stuff like that. So it's a real honor and a pleasure to be on this podcast with you all today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining, Steve. We're, we're very happy to have you. So today we are going to talk about Film at Lincoln Center's upcoming big screen NYFF 58 Redux program to sort of celebrate the reopening of theaters across New York City and our emergence from our home viewing cocoons. Uh, FLC and, and Dan, you can tell us a, a little more about this, but FLC is um, screening a lot of the titles that were part of its festival lineup last year, which were screened only virtually or in drive-in theaters in its cinemas. Not only are um, does the program include titles from last year's lineup, but also some other, you know, older or newer stuff that actually wasn't part of the lineup. So it's just a really great way to return to the new normal, so to speak, and also to pregame for this year's festival, which isn't so far away. That's my little summary. But Dan, as someone who has uh, been working on this Redux program, maybe you can tell us a little about how it came about and what are some of the special things we can look forward to. Yeah, I think doing this program is kind of always the idea, like when we were planning last year's festival. I mean, a decent number of films got screenings in drive-in venues, but certainly not as many as we would have liked, you know, constraints there logistically and so on. So I think, you know, we always kind of thought that when we were able to safely reopen, we would bring back a large swath of the NYFF lineup to sort of receive their uh, proper theatrical screenings that, you know, we kind of associate with the whole uh, NYFF experience up until last year's hybrid edition. People, of course, haven't really been able to watch films and theaters up until fairly recently. So what better way to kind of like get people back into the cinemas than by presenting to them the uh, the films that they would have seen had they been going to the cinema last year. These films were all made with the uh, the sort of the big screen in mind. Of course, some of them work on the on the small screen, but um, on a moral level, maybe it, it felt like important to finally get them into the Walter Reed. So, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the I guess the philosophical reason for why we we did it but as far as um i should i also want to note that it was important to us to give theatrical screenings to films that didn't get the the drive-in screenings at nyff last year uh, a lot of films that you know played in the drive-in are represented in this encore edition but that was just another sort of thing that was important to us in kind of conceptualizing this 
it seemed that 2020 was going to be kind of like a gap year, almost for these really great films in the lineup that really deserved to be seen on the big screen. And I was kind of concerned that they never would be, that they would just go straight to streaming in some way, and then we'd, we wouldn't have an opportunity. So this New York Film Festival Redux program is really kind of a great opportunity, I think, for people to see a lot of this stuff and people in New York. Everybody else, I apologize. Okay, now we're going to get all these tweets about how uh, New York-centric we are. Um, well, at Dan, least Steve is, is located in Seattle, so we're at least hitting That's true. Coasts. We're well represented. Oh, no, no, um, no. He's back in Brooklyn. It's all New York. <laughs> <laughs> he's in Seattle in his mind. We we can perpetuate the myth that I'm in Seattle. My, my traditional Zoom backdrop is, in fact, a shot of Seattle from the 1995 film Fear, starring Reese Witherspoon and... Uh, Mark Wall. Marky Mark, yes, of course. I, I'll send you an image if you need it, but I, I actually took my shirt off because it's really hot in here with the windows closed and everything. <laughs> so we're gonna have to be yeah, bedroom style. But uh, good to know. Uh, this is um, a PG podcast, Steve. Dan, this is uh, this is what I meant when I asked if we were gonna talk about the industry because actually I am legitimately <laughs> curious to know uh, what it looks like on the inside in terms of these films having maybe more opportunities to get seen by a different variety of audiences than the old model would have actually provided. I mean, you mean in the, in the virtual, the virtual screenings kind of opened up. Yeah. Speaking, speaking as New York's unofficial hype man for slow machine, you know, uh, Paul and Joe had been working on that film for five years. And then when the pandemic hit, it was just kind of like, Oh, we had this one, opening to premiere Rotterdam and then we were going to sort of have a festival run and now everything's been fucked up by the pandemic right so or, mm -hmm. uh, messed up by the pandemic right so you can curse <laughs> but what they ended up doing actually was you know drive-in virtual cinema and I think now some limited in-person engagements I don't know I don't I don't actually know if Metrograph is showing any doing any slow machine on site but the point is just I know I think they're not they're not but they're they're going to be doing that for other films. So technically, if you're a filmmaker, this is giving people more chances to see your movie, more chances for writers to cover your movie, more chance, you know. So Dan, maybe you could speak a little bit about switching from the previous arrangement to, you know, these new kind of having this new relationship with the films and what does it mean that they're coming back? You know, how does that privilege the theatrical experience versus the drive-in or what did you learn from the drive-in that now feeds back into, you know, reopening the cinemas? Clint, you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say quickly that Slow Machine is part of the is part of the program, the New York Film Festival Redux program, and I think it's screening in uh, in August. It's in the current lineup, or it was in the current lineup, but it's also currently screening at Metrograph's virtual cinemas. Just to add on to Steve's question, as all the theaters and distribution networks, everything seems to be readjusting. There's also this strange period where. Uh, yeah, the film is having its sort of virtual cinema run right now, but then it's going to come to FLC's theaters in a couple months. So yeah, it, d it does seem like they've, a lot of these movies have sort of had their journeys, their post-festival journeys are at different stages of their post-festival journeys. So yeah, I'm also curious to know internally what it's been like to kind of bring them back together for this sort of festival redux in theater experience. Well, firstly, I think just for filmmakers, it's a happy development. I think, you know, they all made their films with this in mind. And so now they're getting to do that. I can very easily see how that is something of a relief. For the past year and a quarter or so, we've, of course, been watching lots of like movies and so on in our homes. And I wasn't really like a sort of big screen fundamentalist before the pandemic. Like, I think watching things at home has its place. I have to do it uh, for my job. As it, as it turns out, the experience of going to the cinema, being around strangers, maybe meeting up with someone you know, maybe not taking the time to like go home afterwards and, you know, think or what have you. Turns out that's important. So it was just kind of like a, it felt like a missing piece of a, of a balanced cinematic diet that we're, we're kind of getting back. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's a lot to be gained by being forced to sit down and watch too. And and I wonder if maybe you could talk, Dan, and maybe pick a couple of movies that in particular gain from that theater presentation that might have something to impart that wouldn't come across at home. 
I'll start with a film that I haven't seen all of, uh, but just to call out the fact that um, we we actually weren't for various reasons having to do with primarily with like its runtime. We weren't able to show this film in the fall leg of NYFF, which is uh, the works in days. Okay, yeah, when you started this, I was going to say, do you really want to start something by saying you haven't seen all of, but this is an eight hour film, guys. Yeah, <laughs> it is very pardonable. <laughs> I watched uh, uh, when I saw it, it uh, existed in multiple links. And I, I think I'd only watched the first of like four links or so before we found out we probably weren't going to be able to show it like in the drive-in setting. Well, so there had been discussion about showing that showing this film in the drive-in setting. It'd be more accurate i guess to say we were trying to figure out how would it be possible to show this yeah this it's the this is the works and days of taiyoko shiojiri in the shiotani basin yeah see curtis winter and anders edstrom who did uh the previous film the anchorage which people people might know it's excellent film so i think people who know that will are probably already looking forward to this. I've alluded to its gargantuan runtime of 480 minutes, which of course makes it a a tricky proposition in the uh, drive-in setting. But I'm very happy to say that we're going to be screening it within this series for one week. It's going to screen every day for a week. Just one screening because there aren't enough hours in the day. But So that's like seven opportunities to see it that week. And just so listeners know, we will uh, be doing something with that on the Film Comment podcast. So more on the film soon. But yeah, that's definitely a highlight because it didn't screen in any format during the festival, neither virtual nor drive-in. It was sort of this honorary <laughs> place in the lineup that now it's actually getting its its due. So that's good. Dan, you are the, one of the lead programmers on revivals. And I know that there's quite a few revivals titles showing as part of the Redux program. And I think I'm particularly excited for these because not many of them showed in a drive-in last time. And I do think their the lineup was very strong. And these are some really amazing old classics that I think probably are, are going to be fantastic in a theatrical setting. Do you want to pick a couple that you're really excited about? Yeah, sure. Um, that's actually so. This is where I was going to go next, which is from the Works and Days, which is a film that's just that like was logistically difficult to try to show to a film that I think like spiritually belongs in the cinema, both aesthetically, but also just on the level of its philosophy, I guess, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, which is Simone Barbez or or Ula Virtue, which is this kind of underrecognized film by uh, from 1980 by Marie-Claude Treyu. So this film is set in in the lobby of a movie theater. So I should say rather that the first act is set in the lobby of a movie theater, but it's a film about two women who work in a porno theater in Paris. This first act is just kind of them interacting with this kind of motley crew of weirdos who are uh, floating in and out of of the theater. And I think when, when I was like watching this virtually last year, I was, you know, I was thinking about what a crime it was like not to be watching this film in a movie theater with a lobby and a bunch of weirdos floating in and out. I have to say, I love this movie. And not only are these super mundane interactions they have in the lobby, you know, it's it's really a such a great movie about the boredom of being at work and especially at a service job like that, where it's a late night screening. These two ushers are just sitting there uh, entertaining all the men who are streaming in and out and they're kind of squabbling and discussing their personal problems. And all this time, there are these hypersexual sounds coming from within the theater, you know, moaning and, you know, screaming because it's it's porn movies. And it's so funny and and weirdly moving, you know, this like juxtaposition of vulgar ecstasy behind closed doors and these women just this is just another work night and they're just trying to you know get through it and the lobby is also eye-popping you know there's like these neon lights it's very tacky but in a way that now feels very retro and you know cool because it's a movie from the 80s it's very bright neon colors and there's these giant eyes on the wall so it's you know very much wearing this like kind of voyeurism of the establishment you know on the walls and that's just the first of the three acts (laughs) It gets even more interesting. 
Indeed. So there's that. And then the other title from revivals that I would go to, which probably doesn't need much in the way of introduction, which is just Ho Shao Shen's Flowers of Shanghai. As happy as I was with how the virtual iteration of this section worked out last year, it felt really funny presenting a new restoration of probably Ho Shao Shen's most uh, beautiful right. uh, film uh, just in that. So it, it's quite a relief to be bringing that to Walter Reed and get to see it the way uh, Triple H would want. Well, I, I, I'd like to throw a little chaos into the mix here, Dan, because another one of the revivals that I'm especially keen on, and I know you and I have talked about this over the years, is Muhammad Ali, The Greatest. I can't remember if it was you or Dennis or both, but I had a conversation in, in the film Lincoln Center lobby one evening after a screening where one of us decided that it was the greatest sports documentary of all time. I'm not really a jock like you, Dan, but uh, to me, that's pretty much fits the bill. And what's weird about the film is how underseen it is, right? Like people remember footage that was shot at the same time in what was then called Zaire that appears in When We Were Kings by Leon Gast, who died last year. But the Klein movie has this kind of like laser focus on Ali's training routines and stuff that kind of gets passed over in the sort of broad strokes history of uh, boxing documentaries for the, in hindsight, you know, what happened was talking head interview format that Gast opted for. Yeah. But this film, I don't know, are you showing it a print or is it a DCP? Yeah, it's a digital, it'll be a digital copy. It's... But it's been restored, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. the film was impossible to see for many years. You had to get like bootleg DVDs that looked terrible from eBay if you wanted to watch it. Um, that's a major programming coup as far as I'm concerned. and. You know, I, I feel like that's the type of film that it's sort of old and famous enough that it could get lost in the mix. So I just wanted to shut that out for a second. Definitely. And also, uh, I feel like Klein's nonfiction work in general is pretty underseen, right? I think uh, a few of his fiction films are on Criterion Channel and available um, online and, you know, on DVDs and stuff. But the nonfiction work is so interesting. And definitely this feels like... Um, one of the most striking. I think he's done a few different portraits of famous uh, figures, you know, celebrities or, or, or figures who are masters of their particular art or craft. It's a portrait of an athlete, but it kind of, what you were saying, Steve, that attention to training, like this artistic devotion, artistic, ritualistic devotion to his profession that I think the film captures in a very striking way. I mean, it's it's a really great capsule of the moment too, right? Because w- w- it came out in 1968. Is that correct, or am I getting that wrong? There have been a few versions. That it's it's kind of um, uh, I don't know, Steve. When would you say the film was like truly done? Because it had it had a few lives. Oh, right, because he sat on the footage for a while, right? Well, it, this is actually something else I wanted to bring up. Um, it's really interesting about Muhammad Ali, the greatest, which is even more confusingly sometimes was titled float like a butterfly sting like a bee really a programmer's worst nightmare you have one extremely generic title and then you have one long-winded kind of top-heavy title but anyway um klein was following ali in i think 1964 and that's the black and white sequences when he had Uh you know just after he had changed his name from cassius clay to muhammad ali a lot of the material in the first half, it's not really a half, but a lot of the material in those early passages sort of uh, was mimicked or sort of uh, recreated by Michael Mann in his biopic starring Will Smith, which came out, it's going to be 20 years this December. An underrated film, in my opinion. But he didn't have enough for a feature, and so he kind of just sat on that material until the you know Ali was uh, eventually able to box again, of course, considered past his prime. And that's when Don King put together the Rumble in the Jungle with George Foreman. So you have you have this black and white sequence, and then you jump ahead in time a full decade, and and Klein kind of leaves the viewer to just suss out the differences. You know, other people were shooting at the same time, so Klein's footage might even appear in When We Were Kings. But you know, one of my it's sort of a chip on my shoulder that the superior sort of in media res documentary from that time, I guess it was released in whatever form it was, 1975 or 1976 kind of got just totally eclipsed by the 90s looking back one you know yeah. and uh i was just extremely heartened to see that, that was included in the revivals you know well i would um i can confirm that i probably did proclaim it the best sports documentary of all time that sounds like something i would i would say but i but um 
Steve and Devika were talking about the, you know, this sort of emphasis on Ali's training. There's no actual fight footage in the film. You see um, Ali fighting uh, Frazier, Foreman, Liston, so on, um, uh, by way of still images. The film's focus is really, I think, on the context of the political and cultural context of those fights, and by extension, Ali's political and cultural context, like the Beatles visit him while he's training for a fight, you know, um, the, the, the final sort of the final act in Zaire around the, the rumble in the jungle is like, um, Klein is very careful to, uh, he's almost as interested, I think, in, in Mobutu as he is in Ali there. And, and I think that that comes across in the way that he portrays that very famous, uh, sporting event. So that's all to say that, for me, it's just like, it's the most complex uh, kind of sports documentary that I can think of. And it's, it's also probably the most political. So yes, highest possible recommendation to William Klein's Muhammad Ali, the greatest. I'm now racking my brains trying to come up with a better sports documentary. And just, well, Lenny Cook is really good, but just to, uh, 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 just to bring it full circle, Klein, you know, being kind of having this sort of critical leftist lens really opened the film actually with this kind of unforgettable, uh, I think it's a long take even, I, I haven't seen it in some years, of the the kind of like pasty white Southern businessmen who actually owned Cassius Clay's boxing career. You know, they had all put money together to invest in his early matches. And so before he had sort of made a name for himself and made enough money to, uh, you know, pick his own trainers and his own agents and stuff, he was represented by this consortium. And, you know, I... I did an interview with Klein. Klein is still alive, amazingly, living in Paris. I did an interview with him for Hyperallergic. And, um, you know, I would recommend that anyone who's curious about his his politics and sort of the intersection of his photographic practice, but also his uh, self-image as a, he's sort of a classic expatriate, self-hating American. He talks with a sort of a put-on Cary Grant accent. And um, I think this film, you really see both those things coming into praxis. His, you know, his attention to those political details that Dan is sort of citing and, and I'm sort of citing but then also the ability to just like step back and let things unfold and, and capture them in real time, you know. Which is like easy to do when you have like the most, like one of the, let's say five most charismatic people right. who was alive during the 20th century, you know. Right. That's also, I think, why, you know, it really does feel like a capsule because Klein has that ability to really, you know, capture this in media res vibe you know this feeling of really being in the fray uh in the midst of all this like political and media frenzy and the kind of the political rumblings of that time and also then you know then you have uh, all this uh the story of its production and it's uh eventual eclipsing and now it's rediscovery it really feels like something you know dug out of out of the earth i i only saw it online so i'm really excited to see it on the big screen but it very much felt like some real kind of document of its time and seemed to me that there was some kind of, I mean, I wouldn't call it like, you know, new wave, but it seemed like that the urgency of, of filmmaking of that time, especially in France, was sort of, you know, I could sort of feel that in his own filmmaking because, you know, I know that he also did film a lot of political movements. What's the film that's about 68? I'm forgetting the title of the film. Well, that, that film also has two different titles, but there's there's it's called like um, Grand Soir and Petite, uh, you know, the, the Big Night and Small Morning, which is a euphemism for the hangover. So it's like the revolution and the hangover, you know. Right. But I think I think it even maybe it was called May Days somebody that's the title i was thinking of yeah yeah maydays or mayday um that's the one i think i've encountered again it's just examples of where his work is kind of shape-shifting and uh being renamed re-edited even after it's been completed still how someone could be still such a major filmmaker and like you know only a fraction of their stuff is readily available it's really good that that was included in the revivals i think if I could just real quick, um, uh, just because we're sort of talking a little bit about some of Klein's documentary work, if I can put in a word really quick for a film that's not in the series, but it's just a very good William Klein documentary uh, from the 80s. His film about uh, fashion is like probably one of my favorite films about fashion. Mode, Mode in France? Mode en France. Yes. Um, well, uh, 1985. Very formally 
quite different, I would say, from the Ali film, but no less interesting. Definitely more 80s, particularly in terms of like the, you know, the 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 subjects who are, you know, the uh, the designers who are interviewed for the film and so on. Uh, if people haven't seen it, check it out. I'm sure it can be. I'm sure it's like on YouTube or Russian YouTube or whatever. So. Uh- Film comment does not condone copyright violation. (laughs) The opinions represented on this podcast do not express the opinions of the publication. Okay, now we have no relationship with Russian YouTube. (laughs) You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I'm very sorry to say that I have to uh, I have to cut out now uh, to go to a, a, a meeting for this year's revivals section. So go revive them, should... Dan. You must revive them. Keep on reviving. Uh, Steve, I know that you recently uh, introduced this ongoing virtual run at Metrograph of Slow Machine, Joe DiNardo and Paul Felton's film, which is screening as part of, uh, as we mentioned, New York Film Festival Redux. I know that's a film that we all find pretty interesting and kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about. So Steve, do you want to give us a little rundown of, of that film? Earlier in our discussion, I made reference to some hypothetical filmmaker whose work, you know, had been completely uh, sabotaged or paralyzed or put on ice by the pandemic. And then this, you know, uh, silver lining, let's say, of maybe films having protracted lives over the different platforms in the different media. I'm excited to see the film in person, hopefully with the filmmakers there as well, when it plays as part of NYFF 58 Redux. But it's a pretty uncompromising movie. And so I, I think it could have gotten its one or two screenings in the old format, but I'm kind of curious now to think of it as something that people are sort of like, it's sticking in their craw longer than it normally would. And and this movie in particular, I think is good for it. This is kind of a funny aside. Joe put together a showing of works by Raymond Pettibon at Spectacle in 2014. And Pettibon showed up unannounced. Oh, wow. And, and Pettibon actually asked me if I thought he should do a Q&A or not. And just ra- just, he just rolled up and was like, should I do a Q&A? Well, I mean, I, I was, it was a packed house. You know, these are very rare films. Um, these were like his 80s VHS kind of... Durational cinema, we'll call it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I was kind of like, uh, oh, wow, it's such an honor to have you here. Do you want to say anything or do you want to like let people know that you're here? And he was like, um, well, what do you think makes sense? And, and I was kind of, you know, I think I was like 22 when this happened. I was like, uh, yeah, maybe, uh, you know, go, go say something. He did. So people got to know that he was in the room watching with them. And maybe the people who knew him got to speak with him. Anyway, Joe's a cool dude. That's all I'm trying to say. And, mm-hmm. and he's well connected. So when they told me they were making this film, I just thought, whatever it is, it's going to be something. Yeah. And uh, that light bulb moment was in 2015. I knew they were shooting on 16 millimeter. I knew they were going upstate. I knew there was a Chloe Sevigny connection, but I had no clue what the movie was going to be about, what the plot was. You know, they played it close to the vest. And I think last week when we did the Metrograph kind of discussion, you know, I tried to stick to kind of vague questions because I didn't want to, I didn't want to just like go through this laundry list of like Rivette references or uh, Wooster Group marginalia. You know, I kind of wanted them to just talk about their, their collaborative process, how the film came into being. You know, it still has mysteries to yield even after that. But the quick synopsis, I guess, would be a woman whose name I think is also Stephanie, played by Stephanie Hayes, the actress, is an actress, and she comes under the thumb of this putative uh, Homeland Security agent, played by Scott Shepard, who's of the Wooster Group. I believe he's currently in Oklahoma waiting for the weather to clear up so they can resume shooting the new Scorsese film. And uh, ah. 
it's sort of a tortured romance between the two of them, but it also becomes this reflection on national security culture after 9-11. Paranoia culture, I guess. Uh, Steve, I think you should mention how they end up together. You know, that feels like where the movie's kind of, I would say, a meditation, if I can use that word in relation to the movie, on like surveillance culture really kind of stems from. It's just such a strange turn. It basically feels like someone just walks into a room and starts yelling. Like he, he kind of, he's, he's surveying her, right? He's following her. He, she's, she stumbles out into the street drunk, yeah. right? And after a party. Right. And he, he's rescues her and is going to get her home, but it's sort of creepy. You don't really know if he's like where he's taking her. He doesn't take her home. He takes her to this safe house where she passes out. And then when she wakes up, he declares himself a huge fan of her. I work as an actress and he, yeah, I mean, he's so good in this. I think. I mean, he's good on every time he's. I've seen him. He's so unsettling. He really plays it with a straight face, but you know, I mean, he. You re- you really cannot tell if he's just like this weird good guy who's having marital problems, or you know, some deep deep state like uh, counterterrorism uh, homeland security agent who's like spinning this vast conspiracy that. We don't even know what it could be. Or potentially like, you know, just a like bullshit artist who's going to take advantage of her. You know, like, you don't know, like there's so many different things this guy could be. She seems to be willing to give credence to his story that he's this Homeland Security deep state guy and that he just likes her acting and he wants to help her out kind of. Right. I'm, I'm sort of a medium Rivet guy like sometimes I feel like these movies require so much um, supplemental reading that I just can't be bothered but there is some real Celine and Julie stuff going on right and also Duell in terms of they're sort of like adopting these roles she's switching from her, her right, novel, right. which I believe is Finnish into her the next character she's supposed to play who's like this kind of down and out Texan you know right he, right but it's also but it also has the same background as as this other character right it also is an actress exactly I think the yeah the Rivette connection might I see it more as a uh, in terms of that in terms of that slippery narrative and the slip and the slippery identity of the characters. But the film is much more like it's playful, but there's a darkness bubbling under the entire time. The tone is really distinctive. I think that's what uh, immediately struck me about the movie, and I, I was very taken with it. Is that it's very hard to describe what the tone is and in that's how it really kind of gets under your skin in the mm-hmm. way that I think surveillance and post 9-11 you know culture of um preca- you know this constant threat um and paranoia it just captures that very well while also being funny but the way I can describe the film's tone is it feels like like hum- this constant mugginess or humidity where you you know nothing is everything is like slightly suffocating nothing is fully clear everything feels a bit stilted and it's like this is kind of how it feels like to navigate normal life with this almost subconscious uh conviction that everything could fall apart at any instant and, you know, every aspect of mundane life is constantly under threat. But, you know, I'm saying all of these things, none of these things are really spelled out in the film, which is what I like about it. You know, it's very much orchestrated through these elements that are always ambiguous, uh, through this layer of artificiality in everything in the film, right? Like in all the interactions have that stiltedness. So it's like none of these themes are spelled out, but that's why it's so successful at conveying them you know with with such like affective force because i don't know it captures the aesthetic of of post 9-11 life right it really nails that well i I have a memory i think it was 2003 or 2004 where a whole bunch of news articles were published about how there was supposedly going to be a pretty serious attack on times square using the new york city subway system and, you know, it was foiled uh, behind the scenes by the unsung heroes of our uh, forever expanding security state, right? Now, that's like way before this movie even started shooting. So what I really think that they kind of dug into is this shifting uncertainty where 
Americans so fully internalized and embodied this idea that they could be, you know, made victims at any moment after 9-11. And so everyone is sort of the hero of this story, right? But they don't actually know where the story is going. If I could just plug my own work for a second. I wrote an essay about Juliet Berto in uh, Cinemascope, not the most recent issue, but the one before that. And her her partner, her, her lover and filmmaking partner, uh, Jean-Henri Roger, said something that really stuck with me thinking through her work with Brevet, and that also actually came back to mind in this movie, which is she had the confidence that a small child has where they say once upon a time and they don't know what's going to happen next. And, you know, it didn't really click for me until the second or third time I watched Slow Machine. The movie sort of begins and ends with this sort of fairy tale setup. She has a child, right? In the end of the movie, it's like you've jumped forward years in time. Right. I mean, I guess, I guess we're spoiling it. Not that the movie can really be spoiled. There's really not a, yeah. Plot. Yeah. She jumped four years in time. She's she's a big success in her acting career. Uh, the agent is not mentioned. She's clearly with this other guy, and they have a kid, and they're like uh, they're they're not zooming. Unfortunately, they're skyping. But the fact that it's Skype and not Zoom kind of adds to this sort of otherworldliness of the movie. And much of my conversation with Paul and Joe uh, for the Metrograph live screening was about claustrophobia. How this movie has a sort of a mm. a, a black box theater kind of thing going on, where it's two actors in a room. You know, it's sort of like, I mean, in that room, I keep thinking about as we're talking about this, that 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 room is like you can kind of smell the drywall. It just looks like a shoddily thrown together New York City, half constructed a loft in the process of transitioning into a, like a condo. But yeah, they end up there and it, like these intense scenes between them play out in this in this room. This isn't the kind of thing that looks good on a, a large cardboard cutout in a theater lobby, but but I one of the things I love about Slow Machine is that it's really daring the audience to think about the means of its own production because, you know, it is kind of make believe when you have two people in a room and they're saying, well, how do I know you are who you say you are? Well, I could ask you the same thing, you know. I mean, it's very that part is very Wooster Group for sure. Totally, and they even make they even make an explicit reference to Richard Foreman, right? Mm -hmm, right. So. There's these moments where the filmmakers, I'm now talking about them, like they're not personal friends of mine, just these deities or these people on a pedestal. The filmmakers are kind of like ramming through these questions of metatextuality and the uh, postmodern approach, you know, to get to something else, to sort of punch past that possible reading and take it in an even weirder, kind of more tactile direction. I don't know. I mean, Stephanie had some really interesting things to say about Joe's cinematography and the relationship between space and you know, they didn't mean for the film to be as claustrophobic as it as it is, but it definitely reads more claustrophobic and more intimate. Intimate and claustrophobic could be synonyms in some situations. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of close ups. Especially, I remember a lot of the uh, the scenes that take place upstate, which should be sort of a more open space, are really tight close ups on her, and you sort of see the trees in the background, but. And and because of the sixteen millimeter, they also feel uh, pixelated and are, are grainy, which kind of enhances the materiality. Yeah, and also increases that sense of claustrophobia because you know you have the sense of some kind of incomplete capture of these scenes. And you know, I was thinking if there is a scene in which the guy, the supposed agent, basically convinces her into taking. Uh, a car ride with him by saying that the subway is facing a terrorism threat, right? Exactly. And I mean, it's it was a very striking moment for me because we are so used to living with that constant fear. What would you do, right? I mean, would you get in a car with a creepy man or take uh, the subway, a subway that could apparently be bombed any moment? I mean, there's just like constant state of vulnerability uh and it's so easy to fall prey to it um i mean that's the whole thing you know this like unseen threat that could strike any moment is ripe for abuse and misuse right like that that sense of nebulous threat has been and continues to be an alibi for all kinds of abuses and that's a very small moment in the film that and a kind of like a weird funny moment that that gets at that yeah I think that atmosphere of paranoia, though, really recalls to me kind of this seems I mean, Steve mentioned postmodernism to me, it recalls like 60s Pinchon and uh, that kind of that world of literature. The movie makes these gestures towards Rivette, Pinchon. I know Robert Kramer and Robert Kramer, for sure. I feel like Kramer, Robert Kramer seems like a, a big 
influence too. Joe and I have had many nights geeking out over Robert Kramer together, you know, and, and this is all before I had any clue what the movie was going to be about. Oh, so well, it's, it's, it's my longstanding dream to do a, uh, a Robert Kramer podcast. So maybe we'll have both you guys on, but the other quickly, before we move on from slow machine, I also, Joe, Joe DiNardo, uh, plays in a band called growing who are known for very long form drone works almost and sometimes kind of overpoweringly loud drone music and uh, in some of their far- formations they had kind of a, a weird intense industrial also punishingly loud record but um the work that he's done in growing can be read into this movie to a certain extent felton as a screenwriter a professional screenwriter may have brought this wooster group theaterish sensibility and kind of mixed it into this more drifting interest in the materiality of the image itself. Well, just just to cap it quickly, I mean, one thing about themes real quick, you know, Devika, hearing you sort of walk through uh, what you were thinking and feeling uh, in relation to the film, the, the plot quite literally gets lost. Like if right. there ever is a part where they're trying to solve a crime or prevent a terrorist attack, you kind of just forget all of that by the last 20 minutes. I love that this film is 72 minutes. It's, it's the pre-code length, you know, it's like the perfect runtime for a, a fleet confusing movie but I was really afraid actually you know the film was going to build to some sort of grandiose statement or leave me with this sort, sort of like, like subtextual horse pill that I would take away and talk about at cocktail parties I I will say this too like I think it is interesting that the movie is about actors and so there is like a very tangible reason for the make-believe aspect of it and I think that's what allows it to be kind of loose as well because in a way acting and you know improvising the you know the the kind of strategy of improv is you know this like absolute trust right this yes and I mean you believe everything and you play along with everything um and I just like how in the movie that kind of seems to butt up against this ethos of question everything don't ever play along to anything I I just feel like that concoction works very well I did want to talk about the Small Axe uh, movies, uh, specifically the last episode. And I know Steve um, also really likes one of the episodes. I don't know whether to call them episodes or movies. Uh, Steve McQueen has repeatedly said that he thinks of them as distinct movies. And I agree with with his uh, read as well. And they've obviously been on a screening on Amazon Prime, but... I really do think that it's worth uh, seeking them out in the theaters. They're all going to be screening at FLC's theaters. Um, And I was really struck by all of them. People have talked a lot about Lover's Rock, which is one of my favorites. But Education, the last one, you know, I mean, it completely won me over. And I'll keep it short because there's been some writing on these films that people should seek out. But, you know, Small Axe is a series of five stories about the experience of London's West Indian community, mostly from the 70s and 80s. For me, as someone who was not that aware of these histories, you know, um, whether it's the the mangrove uh, trial or, or, you know, other aspects of that history that the series uncovers or, or kind of dramatizes, you know, just on an on the level of kind of opening myself up to these new stories, I was so fascinated. And then with education, you know, I think the film is one of those rare movies that really manages to portray how carceral the education system can be, you know, and it does that really powerfully. The The film explores the phenomenon of schools for the, I think they're called educationally subnormal. And these were these schools that were meant for children in the UK who, you know, were, I guess, considered not up to snuff or lacking in uh, their cognitive or intellectual abilities. And they were sent to these schools. And there was a period of time when there was a um, policy adopted by certain councils where particularly black and brown immigrant children were sent there. You know, um, many of these children coming from immigrant households, you know, parents who don't necessarily weren't educated in English or read or write, uh, you know, English. And so already have a lack of support um, outside of the school and then are, you know, uh, confronted with racist assumptions about their abilities, right? Like rather than understanding that these are kids who need a certain kind of support, uh, just the blanket assumption that, Uh, They're just not good enough or biologically lack the ability to learn. And so they were sent into these schools, which were basically run, you know, like a joke. I mean, there was just basically no training there. Uh, The teachers would often just 
sort of pass the time. And a lot of these kids would emerge not even knowing how to read or write, you know, after going through all these years of so-called schooling. So this is the history that the film um, shows through the story of one boy and how a community of women where he lives take up this cause, you know, understand what's happening and form this neighborhood council and start like spreading awareness among these parents and gathering them together and starting this alternative Sunday school. You know, one of the uh, women starts starts like gathering these children in her home and providing them the education they need and also teaching them the history of their own, you know, heritage, you know, African and Caribbean history and how they basically band together to expose what's happening at these subnormal schools. So all of the small acts films, it just tells this systemic story, right, of this systemic injustice, but does it so beautifully through the story of one family and one kid, but never in a way that individualizes this phenomenon. I That's what really strikes me about the whole series and this film in particular. It's able to tell the story of one family and it's it's full of such moving moments you know the mother's realization that the kid is even farther behind in, in his education than he shows her at home when she realizes that you know he just is lacking confidence because no one is actually taking the pains to give him the kind of instruction he needs and there's a heartbreaking moment when we learn this is a spoiler so you know pause if you haven't watched it but it just when we learn that his father, who's shown as sort of stern and, you know, feels that, uh, why even, you know, why even should he go to school? You know, he can learn a trade. We realize that the father doesn't know how to read or write either. So there's this, you know, generational um, disadvantage and shame that's built in. And all these moments are just um, isolated in a way that, I don't know, I was reduced to tears. But at the same time, you learn so much about how, like in all these films, there are stories of discrimination and suffering, but they're also really stories about community resilience. And organizing. Yeah, about organizing. And it very much shows the mechanics of that organizing, you know, what it took these people to go knock on doors, to form these alternative institutions. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I thought, you know, that the the storyline with the father, I remember thinking, it could have been very much like a kitchen sink kind of family drama that father is gruff, mad at the kid. But then you, the father also eventually kind of comes around to recognize like how messed up the situation is that his kid is in. And that's what at the end is just so moving, I think, because because it's about organizing and it shows that it can be successful to a certain extent. Right. And that the victories are often small, but they can mean the world to one child or one exactly, family. Yeah. And even though the film is about the specific phenomenon and the, you know, the subnor- at schools for the subnormal, I mean, such a horrific term, it says a lot about education, the educational system in general in many countries, you know, including yeah. the U.S. Right, the scene with the teacher strumming along on the guitar and like pr- basically practicing his like terrible street corner folk music in front of the class is not something that you'd be totally surprised to see happening in a normal <laughs> charter school in New York City. You know, like. And I also like that never does the film make the argument that, oh, he's not dumb. The other people are, but this particular character was unfairly placed. The lens always remains systemic, you know, even if, and it's never like, oh, he does not deserve this uh, injustice. It's that the system is just built to let these children fail. Yeah. I know, Steve, you wanted to talk about Red, White, and Blue, another episode or film in this series. I I have a couple thoughts. Of course, I I can't pretend to know what Steve McQueen is thinking, but um, my interest in him as a filmmaker is more and more somebody who's using mainstream platforms and vernaculars to communicate kind of complicated ideas. So, you know, you're talking about the difference between individual uh, narratives and collective ones. I think maybe that this format and indeed, can we really say if they're films or uh, weirdly structured TV episodes, you know, cause Mangrove is over two hours, yeah. but uh, education I think is like 62 minutes. I, I think, not having everything tethered to one character's perspective or one traditional screenplay structure allows him to sort of acknowledge the incompleteness of this project. And it looks like he's going back for more with his next thing, right? Which is going to be another sort of multi-episode 
not a panorama, but sort of a, a, a mosaic maybe, you know, with different stories given different attention to serve different purposes. So I think it was great that Lover's Rock was sort of the first taste everyone got of this series because both Education and Alex Weedle are more, I don't mean this as a criticism, but they're more didactic. They are more explicitly, uh, you know, agitprop about these terrible systems. And it's interesting that we're talking about this the week after the revelations of the um, the Canadian residential schools, the residential schools, right. All this talk about defunding and or uh, restructuring policing, if not outright abolition, then you talk about the prison system, fine. But so many of these other things, like you're saying, uh, Devika, are, are already kind of carceral and, and dressed up in plain clothes as uh, social services, as state services, you know, the relationship that people who are either from colonies or who are descendant of immigrants have to those structures of power is completely different from, you know, a white English person or a white American's notion of what really goes on. Child protective services, you might say. So it's been weird for me because a lot of the most discerning cinephiles I know have brushed some of these off as being either like too didactic or maybe too melodramatic, which brings me to red, white, and blue. Obviously, it's a strategic choice to cast John Boyega as this like young, smart, but maybe impressionable black cop who basically sees a real possibility to create change and, and, and strengthen the relationship between the black community and the police. And it's not just a story of this guy getting shellacked. You know, it's, it's, it's not miserableism. It's actually a suspense story. And, you know, part of the reason that it worked so well for me is because you... There's things that you can recognize from other McQueen films. There's this really, really intense attention to detail. There's texture, there's clothing, there's music. There's kind of like what that type of first-generation respectability might have looked like in that moment in the early 80s. But at the same time, you know, he's using a world-famous movie star as this kind of vessel for this story where someone really tries to do the right thing and and kind of doesn't really know how to navigate that situation. And... um this is another spoiler, but one of the moments that really made the film kind of... I mean, I was i was kind of in its palm from the beginning, but there's this kid who he's kind of like paying attention to in this kind of ongoing narrative thread, and he receives a call on his radio to go check out this situation, and then he receives a call to go check out another situation, and the kid never comes back. He never really resolves this question of whether the kid was safe or whether the kid actually got into trouble. And the two films don't have a ton in common, but in Slow Machine, one of the very first things that she says to the agent is, oh, you're going to tell me the world is a dangerous place and we need people like you to protect us. You know, I think in a totally different context, a totally different milieu, uh, Red, White, and Blue engages that that way of thinking or that that sort of precept, which is very common among Republicans, but also Democrats, that there are people professionals in this bipartisan, apolitical way, we trust them to preserve law and order without really thinking the political implications of what they're doing or who they're serving. Technocrats. Exactly. No, that's a really uh, good connection too. Yeah. Widows and, and maybe more arguably 12 Years a Slave, these are both movies that are meant to be released and seen in a kind of a mainstream context, right? And maybe Small Axe represents an even more sort of aggressive wouldn't say subverting, but but a, a sort of a making something that could have just been very maudlin and generic, actually quite dense with, you know, personal recollection, but also like the textures I was talking about earlier of these people and their kind of lifestyles and their communities. And in some way, there's less pressure than there would be with a single theatrical film, you know, to, to make all these political points land. I think it's a very nuanced and interesting experiment. I'm not going to name names, but I, I watched Red, White and Blue with two rather discerning cinephiles, one of whom is a professional critic. And they both kind of just, they were like, yeah, it's okay. It's kind of corny melodrama, you know? And to me, that was... I mean, I felt that way about Mangrove, but I, I mean, the way you're framing it is very much like, I don't know, makes it much more interesting, I think. Well, I think well Mangrove is, Mangrove is again, I'm going to use this word not as a diss, but Mangrove is a, it's a courtroom drama, right? It's kind of didactic. It's kind of procedural. It's like a television courtroom drama, though, from like, you know, you could see like it reminded me actually a little bit of uh, Burning an Illusion by Menelik Shabazz, which is a seminal film. Uh, I think it's 1982 about Caribbean, you know, the descendants of Caribbean immigrants or the descendants of slaves in London sort of trying to navigate the justice system that's like totally rigged against them. There's also something like Perry Mason about it to me. But I think and that's where I, I was mean, like kind of I uh, what I do like is that. You know, I didn't feel like Steve McQueen was trying to take these uh, formulaic genres and then, like, make them 
you know, artsy or tired, you know, this, the thing that a lot of prestige television, I I think there's that tendency to take these formulas and say, but, but, you know, we're going to do it differently. We're going to do it, uh, you know, cerebrally. I mean, look, he's trying to tell stories and make like what you said, Steve, he's trying to give mainstream shape and form to stories that have clearly been under, you know, reported that haven't been acknowledged enough in the UK. And I mean, the world over, it's kind of shocking that, you know, even uh, people like us weren't fully aware of these histories. And so I do think that he's using those forms, but then finding, I mean, he has, uh, I've always like, liked his work quite a bit. Um, even though I know some people are more polarized, but you know, he's a great visual artist, obviously. So that visual sensibility comes through in all these films, but also he's using these structures, like you were saying, sort of like didactic, almost agitproppy structures, but he finds moments of, I would say, uh, opening in them. And Red, White and Blue actually was maybe my least favorite of the five for, you know, some of these cliche elements like this you know black cop who wants to uh improve a rotten system but i was very struck by the ending the ending is there's no resolution of any kind it's actually so bleak and that conversation he has with his father which again one thing i was really struck by in the film that his father is so anti-police because he's you know lived a different kind of life this uh, a life that predated the whole diversity spin that, you know, maybe the police pursued in, in like trying to clean up its image. And there's no, it's not that he turns one way or another, but the film really sits with his disillusionment and the sense of just being trapped in this, of him like kind of confronting his own maybe naivete. Totally agree with everything you're saying. And I, I do understand why the film didn't really work for some colleagues. I mean, what makes it cinema to me is Boyega. And the ability to buy and really be emotionally invested in that performance and uh, having no particular fondness for his Star Wars stuff. I mean, it's it's just mechanically separated cinema like so much else. I was I thought that he was really doing some really, 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 really intense nonverbal acting in all these scenes where he's sort of like going through the training, figuring out how to solve the situation, figuring out how to, you know, maintain his uh, relationship to the community, even though he's now in uniform, you know. It's very subtle. And I'm not going to say that I saw something that other people like missed and that they're dumb and I'm smart. But, you know, this was like, okay, this is, again, an A-list movie star, you know, turning in a really detailed, like really deep intuitive performance. I would have loved to see that on the big screen. And um, well, now you can. Now I can. But just at New York Film Festival, Redux. Redux. But the thing, you know, you talked about the diversity spin of course, some version of that is happening in big budget mainstream film and TV right now. I think Steve McQueen is probably the most successful instance I can cite of, you know, a filmmaker, an artist of color entering into this big money machine and producing something, multiple things actually, that do not serve as a delivery vessel for this sort of uh, pasted upon affirmative message that, you know, is meant to sort of uh, redress the wrongs of like over 100 years of mostly white-led cinema. I think actually the the irresolution, and this seems to be a big theme in the movies we're talking about today, the lack of resolution and the lack of an easy takeaway, you know, the fact that Amazon paid for and didn't mess with and released that, it's to somebody's credit. And, you know, I'm from Seattle. I fucking hate Amazon. I thought it was quite funny how Mangrove has that like panning shot that scene where letitia wright's character uh you know goes to organize these factory workers and tells them about their right to unionize (laughs) that's in the film that's a great scene so you know it could easily be confused as just like uh you know if if you support it you would say it's uh polemical if you don't like it you would call it propaganda but i think there are sort of more nuanced things going on with genre you know with performance with casting and, and also you know it is a political gesture. This part is not a novel observation, but it is giving voice, as you said, to ordinary people whose lives might not have been considered worthy of making a movie back when these things were actually happening. I mean, Burning an Illusion is uh, officially cited, I think, as the first movie about a black British woman. And that's that movie is less than 40 years old. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. And Dan, wherever you are, thank you for joining us for the first 
portion to discuss the the New York Film Festival Redux program this summer. Um, It was really great having you on, and we hope to have you on again soon. Thank you both very much. It's been a real treat for me. And uh, I'm glad we're still talking about these movies nine months later. I know. I think they merit the discussion. That's that's kind of one of the great things. I also think that it, this is nice because um, we're often like covering movies as soon as they come out or we see them at a festival. And this has been a nice opportunity to sit with these movies for a long time, like seven, eight months, and then to return to them. There's something very pleasurable about that. So... I mean, one of, one of my hangups as a critic was, you know, maybe I don't want to have a fully formed opinion about a movie uh, 40 minutes after I've left the press screen. Maybe I want to sit on it for a couple of years, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I think things are mutating in an interesting way. Of course, none of it makes the pandemic worth having happen, but still. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I think we'll, we'll sign off. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Thank you both. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.